Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You shall have no other gods. What does this mean? We should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. All things. There is nothing else in heaven or on earth that we should fear more or love more or trust more than God. And this is the first and most important commandment. In fact, if somehow you were able to keep just this one commandment perfectly, just one command, then in fact you would be able to keep all the other Commandments, Because if you were truly able to fear, love, and trust in God above all things, then you would naturally love God perfectly, and as well as love your neighbor as yourself. But the problem is that we can't keep this commandment perfectly. And so we do break all the other commandments as well. It's our inability to keep this first commandment that is actually at the heart of all human sin and rebellion ever since our fall into sin. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were enjoying life with God as it should be, as God designed it to be. They did fear, love, and trust in God above all things at first. Everything was in perfect order between God and mankind. Between mankind and creation, the Lord was our God, we were his people, we all lived together in this world that he had made. But the day came when Adam and Eve gave in to the temptation that perhaps life would be better without God above all things. The day that Adam and Eve decided to fear, love, and trust in the serpent, in his lies, in themselves more than God. And ever since that day, every sin, every rebellion, every wrong thing pursued in this world in the end has been a breaking of that first commandment, an effort to put something other than God as our God. Imagine God's heartache throughout the history of the Old Testament as he continually loved and pursued and saved his people over and over. But time and time again, they decided to repay God for his love by choosing something other than him to be their God and their king. For instance, it was in the time of Israel's judges, which was the time after the people had been delivered into the promised land, but before they yet had any kings, that Samuel spoke to them as God's messenger, as God's prophet. And one day, all the elders, all the leaders of Israel came to Samuel, and they said to him, appoint for us a king to judge us like all the other nations have. But you see, this greatly troubled Samuel because Samuel knew that Israel was not supposed to have an earthly king. God was their king. And the reason why they didn't have another king was because the temptation would be too great. An earthly king is someone that you can see and touch and bow down to. But a king is also human and imperfect and sinful. 
A king can mislead the people away from God and in the end even take the place of God himself. And so Samuel knew that Israel would stumble into idolatry if they were ever allowed to have an earthly king. So Samuel talked to God about it. But God answered Samuel. And he said, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. And so Samuel did go out and he anointed what would be the first of Israel's many kings. But Israel's story from that point on would become a tragic one as Samuel's warning would eventually come true. From that point on, Israel was constantly substituting their king for their God and false gods for their true king. However, amazingly, that did not stop God from pursuing his people. In fact, God knew that he needed to pursue them. God knew that he needed to provide for them the solution to to break this terrible cycle of idolatry that they were caught in. And so God knew that one day he would send his one and only son, who is true God, but also true man, to be that perfect king for his people. The king that none of the other kings in Israel's history could possibly be. But how did it go? What do we see today? Well, Jesus was given a crown and a robe, but it wasn't because he was being hailed as a king. Although Jesus deserved a coronation, what he received instead was a crucifixion. And Jesus' torn up flesh was draped with that robe as his crimson blood soaked into that purple fabric and that crown of thorns dug deep into his scalp as his head hung in exhaustion and humiliation. And the soldiers yelled, Hail, King of the Jews! But it was all a terrible and sadistic joke. If God's heart ached back when Samuel told him that the people had rejected him as their king, imagine how God felt when he saw his beloved son, who was meant to be a precious gift to us, the true king, rejected and treated like a common criminal. It was Pontius Pilate who oversaw this moment. And Pilate truly was in a no-win situation. He had no interest in being involved in in an internal religious dispute among the Jews. His job was to maintain Roman control and peace in Judea, while at the same time not giving this historically and fiercely independent people to mount another insurrection. Pilate was trying to offload Jesus as quickly and quietly as possible so as to placate the Jews. His concern was not justice. And it certainly wasn't to find out the truth about Jesus, even though there were moments when he came awfully close to doing just that, much closer than he probably ever intended to get. But Pilate thought that if he could just punish Jesus enough, that the Jewish leaders would be satisfied, and then he could just release Jesus quietly. But the chief priests and the leaders 
We're all too aware of the tenuous nature of Pilate's political situation. And so they were able to turn every screw to make it impossible for him to do what he wanted. And so when the time was right, they shot an arrow straight into Pilate's Achilles heel. They said, if you release this man, then you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. You see, that hit the bullseye. The one person that Pilate would answer to if things went south in Judea was Caesar. Caesar was Rome's version of God on earth. If you were Roman, then you were bound to serve and even worship Caesar. And so for Pilate, he was only in his position because of Caesar's good graces. And if Jesus was claiming to be any kind of king, then under Roman rule, he was challenging Caesar's authority. Pilate felt he had no other choice but to give in to their demands. But before he does, and to show his disdain for being manipulated by them, Pilate puts Jesus before the crowd. And he cries, Behold, your king. To which they replied, Away with him. Away with him. Crucify him. And so Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And that's when the people said something that should have gotten caught in their throats the moment they heard themselves say it. Because the words that they spoke were an echo of what had been said to Samuel when the people had rejected God as their king. The words that were spoken were an echo of what had been said when Adam and Eve trusted in something other than God to be their God. The chief priest, above all, should have heard themselves say these words and realize that this was the most egregious way to break the first and most important commandment. They said to Pilate, we have no king but Caesar. And the fact that no one even stopped to think about what they had just said. That no one even batted an eye because they were so dead set on killing Jesus. It just goes to show how lost in their sin they truly were. How deep in open rebellion they were against God as their king and their Lord. They were not only guilty of rejecting Jesus as king but God as their God. And as we consider the audacity of those sinful and rebellious people, we must this night also realize how we too are sinful and rebellious against God. How we too have contributed to the crucifixion of Christ our King. And if you say to yourself, well, I wasn't there, I didn't call for him to die, then I don't think you fully considered the true nature of your own sin. Because any time that you sin, you also are guilty of breaking the first commandment. Anytime you sin, you also are telling God that he is not the one that you ultimately fear and love and trust above all things. When you covet or steal what is not yours, when you speak poorly about others, 
when you betray a spouse's trust, when you speak out of anger or hate, when you fail to honor your parents or any other authority that God has placed in our life, then you have placed your own needs and your own desires above your neighbor's. And you have also indicated to God that you have a better plan for your life than he does. What's more, when you neglect the study and glad reception of his word in your life, when you misuse the name of the Lord your God, not calling upon it at all times in prayer and praise like you ought to, when you turn to something else, anything else other than God, to save you in times of trouble or worry, even if it's turning to yourself and your own can-do attitude, then you have chosen that thing in that moment to be your God. And you have disregarded the God who loves you, who has pursued you, who has saved you. You have done all of these things so many times in your life. And so have I. Every time we sin, every time we break one of the Ten Commandments, we are also breaking the first and most important commandment. And so we join that crowd who yells, we have no king but Caesar. Every time we sin, we participate with those who shouted, crucify him. Every time we sin, we find ourselves hammer in hand, driving the nails into the feet and hands of our Lord Jesus Christ. We see him hanging on that cross, rejected as king. And we know the reason he is there is because we have all in our own and various ways rejected him. And chosen to be kings unto ourselves. That is what our sin is. But the amazing thing about all of this that took place is that God knew that it was going to happen. About 700 years before Jesus came into this world, God spoke through his servant and prophet Isaiah about the suffering servant who was to come. The one whose appearance was so marred, as we heard in Isaiah 52 and 53, who had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Yet, Isaiah says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him, Because God knew even before time began that we would one day need a Savior to bear the full weight of our sin, to be crushed for us so that we might be spared. God knew that in the worst act of our idolatry as mankind that we would reject and crucify his beloved son. But God also knew that by his rejection, his son would secure for us our salvation and the salvation of the entire world. God's son was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his stripes we are healed. 
You see, Isaiah was pointing forward to Jesus. God has always been pointing his people to Jesus. Because it's in Jesus that we find God's definitive answer to all of our sin, all of our idolatry, all of our rejection of God as our king. And by the blood of the righteous one, Isaiah says, God has now made us righteous. This Good Friday, we once again hear and think about and meditate upon the terrible consequences of all of our sins as we see him hanging there on the cross. But we don't need to look away. Instead, God brings us this evening to the foot of the cross once again. But he doesn't bring us there to scold us. God doesn't bring us to the foot of the cross to condemn us. No, today God has us look upon his son high and lifted up as he lovingly and graciously says to us, See what I have done for you. See that I have given you myself. I forgive you all of your sins. Behold, my beloved son, and your true King. In Jesus' name, amen. And now may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.